Bible this morning, so if you use your phone, pull that out. Need one, there's a copy of Scripture in the seat in front of you. I ask you to turn this morning to Exodus 14. We're going to look at the entire chapter. Exodus 14, there are some notes in the bulletin that you received on the way in or that you picked up. This morning we've come to what you could call the main event. I thought about putting a video of Michael Buffer up there, you know, sort of getting everyone excited. This is the main event, at least of the first half of the book of Exodus. You can't say it's the main event for the whole book because there's a lot of book left. And you don't want to say the rest of it is insignificant. It is significant, but this is certainly something that we've been building to. And I just want to start off with a little bit of basic information to sort of lay the groundwork, and then we'll jump in, we'll read the passage, and we'll talk about it. Uh, If you look in your Bible at Exodus 14.2, we'll read these places in just a minute. There's just a brief list of three places that modern-day scholars aren't able to exactly pinpoint on the map where they are today. And we'll put the names of them up here. The best we can do is sort of make an educated guess at what the words might mean and the significance of the place names. Uh, Pi Haharoth possibly refers to a canal system. People think there's a, a linguistic connection there to some sort of canal, and so maybe that was some sort of geographic landmark of, of where they were headed. Migdal, scholars are, are pretty sure that that refers to some sort of fortification. Baal Zephon uh, seems like a, a Canaanite, more of a Semitic term, and so scholars say it's possible that there was some sort of temple to a Canaanite deity somewhere in Egypt. That would have been well within their religious system to accept something like that and to welcome something like that. And so there's these three place names where God says, this is where we're headed. And just so we all know, we're not exactly sure where those places are at today. I can't give you the GPS coordinates. I can't drop a pin on the map and say, this is where it is. But that's maybe a clue as to what some of these terms mean. Something that is a little bit more clear is that once Israel arrived at this place where God wanted them to go, they were at a strategic disadvantage. The text is going to tell us that they had turned back the wrong way, meaning they were headed towards what we would call the promised land or towards at least Mount Sinai at this point. They turned back at some point and they sort of trapped themselves between Pharaoh's army that was marching out to get them and the sea behind them. So they were were in a bad spot. And what's interesting is that the whole thing was a setup. God sent them to this specific place on purpose, knowing, as we'll read in just a minute, everything that was about to happen. In fact, at times, pulling the strings and making sure it all happened, it was a total setup that God would put these people here in a desperate situation. He was baiting Pharaoh into one last fight. And when you just stop to think about that for a minute, that God is putting his people in this spot, So that he can harden Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh will come out for one last fight. When you think about what Pharaoh has just gone through, the firstborn throughout the land of Egypt, dead. At the end of nine other horrendous plagues. And God's not done with him yet. If that doesn't make your knees knock a little bit and tremble before God, I don't think you're reading the story correctly. God's in complete control of this, and he calls the people out to this location where they're at a strategic disadvantage, and he's baiting Pharaoh for one last fight where he's going to humiliate Pharaoh and humiliate the Egyptians. Now, speaking of Pharaoh, Hollywood, in the cartoons and the movies and the things that have been made, have given us all sorts of ideas that when you read the text carefully, may or may not actually play out in the actual text 
of Scripture. And one of those details is this. The text does not explicitly say that Pharaoh himself was drowned in the sea. Don't have to require that happening. And additionally, the text does not say that the entire Egyptian army was drowned. So we may have that in our heads, that Pharaoh and every last soldier in Egypt was killed in the Red Sea. As you read the text carefully, especially in the original language, that's not required interpretation or required takeaway. What is clear is that Pharaoh gathers a large force and he marches out to recapture the Hebrews that used to be his slaves. And most, if not all, of those who went out then charge into the sea. And we don't know if Pharaoh did or he did not. And you can read other passages throughout the Old Testament that sort of speak to this issue. And I'm just telling you that when you read it carefully and you look at the original language, it's not required that Pharaoh and every Egyptian soldier actually dies in the sea here. One thing that's interesting, if you look at the text, we'll just jump ahead and look at one verse. Exodus 14, 24 says that in the morning watch, the Lord, Yahweh, in the pillar of fire and cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces. It's interesting that it's at the morning watch when the sun was coming up in Egypt. This representation of the most powerful Egyptian deity is now coming to the surface. And it's at that morning watch that the Lord looks down upon the Egyptian forces. And the text says he threw them into a panic. And the text here doesn't actually explain how that happened. What, what did he do to make these forces panic? And there's one clue in the book of Psalms, Psalm 77, that seems to suggest that it was a massive thunderstorm that sent the Egyptian forces into a panic. We're not going to look at the whole passage this morning. You can go back and read all of Psalm 77 and think, uh, at least decide if you think there's a connection there. But that's one possibility as to how God threw them into a panic. One thing we do know is that this moment, when they pass through the sea and then God closes it in behind them and drowns the Egyptians, it becomes a defining moment for the Hebrews as a people. It's a defining moment for Israel as a nation. Over and over again, as you read through the rest of the Old Testament, the Hebrews and the Gentiles, non-Hebrews, are going to look back to this moment as the beginning of the nation of Israel. This, this moment of crossing the sea and then Pharaoh's forces being drowned was just etched in their brain as a, a foundational identity marker in who they were as God's people. All of it adds up to a very simple, very important big idea. Salvation and judgment result in God's glory. Salvation and judgment result in God's glory. Maybe as clear as any passage in the Bible, of, uh, as clear as any passage in the book of Exodus, Exodus 14 reminds us that God is glorified in saving his people, and God is glorified in judging his enemies. And that can be a hard idea to sort of wrap around into one thought, but it's certainly here in Exodus 14. So let's read the text, the entire chapter, and then we'll jump in and talk about how we're to understand it. Exodus 14.1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-ha-harath between Migdol and the sea in front of Baal-zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They're wandering in the land and the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, 
and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that his people, that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot, and he took his army with him, uh, and, and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen, and his army overtook them and encamped at the sea by Pahiharoth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians." For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand, and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them. Against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, 
the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Let's pray. Father, we read this story and we marvel and we wonder and we just find ourselves amazed in your presence. We find ourselves overwhelmed with your glory and your power. Father, we pray for eyes to see truth as we look at a story that's so familiar to us, familiar from Sunday school, from sermons, from cartoons, from movies that we've seen. Father, we pray for eyes to see the truth of what the text says, what it doesn't say, and we pray for hearts to receive it and and minds to think through how it might apply to our lives. Father, as we see this picture of you in salvation and judgment, we pray that our response would be appropriate, that we would be humbled, that we would tremble before you. Father, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I read through the chapter this week, thinking about God saving his people, judging the Egyptians, there's a couple of things in the text that made me think about our summer mission trip to Canada this last year. And uh, I just want to point out a couple of those things. One thing that you see here for the first time is that when people travel and they're tired, hangriness is a very real thing. And I just want to show you the people that I drove around in Canada. This was like we were there for like 30 minutes, and we had to go in and 30 minutes, right, Crystal? No? 45 minutes. And uh, irritable, dramatic, confused, another irritable, and whiny. That's the people I had to drive around all week long. And I felt like Moses with just hangry people in the back of my van all week. The other thing that I seriously thought about was Niagara Falls. We had one free day, and we got to go visit Niagara Falls. There's our team uh, standing in front of uh, not the main waterfall, but just sort of the first part of the waterfall you see from the Canadian side. And we went down low, and uh, they give you these nice, lovely ponchos, and you think, ah, I don't know if I need that. And then you get on the boat, and you ride out uh, into the middle of what they call Horseshoe Falls. And at Horseshoe Falls, 6 million cubic feet of water go over the edge every minute. I don't know how much water that is, but I'm just telling you, it's a lot of water going over the edge every minute. It is, by force, the most powerful waterfall in North America, and it's just in the shape of a nice little horseshoe, and so we rode the Hornblower uh, boat cruise, and you go down and you put your poncho on. You can see all the little red ponchos there on that boat in the middle, and they just drive that sucker. That's not as far as it goes. They drive you into the middle of that horseshoe. And the water's crashing down all around you, and it's splashing up all over the place, and it's like you're in the middle of a thunderstorm. And I'm just reminded, as I think about riding out there into the middle of that water, of the power of water, the force of it, the sound of it. You could just not only feel it because you were wet, but you could just feel the power of all of this water crashing over the edge. And then we read... In the book of Exodus, that it's not even a difficult thing for the almighty, all-powerful, sovereign God to just take the sea and split it in two. To just 
send a wind overnight that parts the water in two so that Israel can walk through to safety and freedom and God's people, or God's enemies rather, are crushed in the very same waters. I just remember as we rode out into the middle of that waterfall, just the feeling of being overwhelmed at the power of what was taking place almost all around you. And I imagine the same feeling was felt by the Hebrews as they walked through the sea with a wall of water on their left and a wall of water on their right, thinking, what in the world have we got ourselves into? And they make it to safety and they turn around and they see Moses lift his arm up one more time and the waters come crashing down and they drown Pharaoh and his army. This is an amazing passage that teaches us about God and it teaches us about how he saves his people and it teaches us about how he judges his enemies. And so that's just sort of the big overarching question we're going to try to answer. What does Exodus 14 teach us about God and salvation and judgment? And we'll try to tie it all together as we go. The first thing is this. It's about God. God is sovereign over all things. And I know we've said this before in the book of Exodus, but it's just a repeated theme over and over and over again. And if you're going to be faithful to each individual passage, it just keeps coming out over and over and over again. God is in complete control of all things, all people, every last molecule. It's all under his control. He's in control of the wind, in the water, in salvation, in judgment. He controls all of it. It was interesting to read this week, uh, some of the skeptics that look at this story and try to explain how it is that a body of water could be parted in two. And there's all sorts of theories. We talked about some of those theories back when we looked at the plagues and the frogs and the gnats and all. How how did it really happen? The scientists want to know. And they ask the same question here. They want to know, how did it happen? And what do you mean the wind blew all night long? And you just have to come back to verse 21. You have to say, God was sovereign over all of it. Look at verse 21. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and he made... The sea, dry land, and the waters were divided. God did that. He controlled what we know to be some of the most uncontrollable elements in all of nature, wind and water. And they were completely at his beck and call. He did it. He was in control of it. But he's not just in control of the elements. He's in control of people. Look at the text and look at verse 4. Verse 4, he says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. I will harden his heart. And I'm going to get glory over them. And he's going to pursue you. And then lo and behold, you just keep reading and you get to verse 5. And it says, "Huh, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed. How was it changed? God changed it. Just like he said he would. I'm going to harden this man's heart for one last fight. You see the same thing in verse 8. Look at verse 8. The Lord hardened his heart. First part of the verse. Second part of the verse. He pursued the people. Why did he pursue them? Because God hardened his heart to do it. He's in control of this man. He's sovereign over this man. Over his thoughts, his heart, over all of it. He's sovereign over the Egyptians. Look what we read in verse 17. God says, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them into this this cavernous canyon of water. This well-trained, well-disciplined army is going to march right into the middle of it even though they know better. Why? 
Because God said he's going to harden their heart. And you jump down and you look at verse 23. And it says the Egyptians pursued and they went in after them into the midst of the sea. Why did they do that in verse 23? Because verse 17 says God promised to harden their hearts that they would march in. Look, if it seems like God is pulling all the strings in this story, it's because he is. All of them. He's sovereign over the whole thing. John Calvin explains it like this in his commentary on Exodus. He says, Therefore God, for the sake of magnifying his glory, set a bait to catch the tyrant just as fish are hooked. He's in control of all of it. And he's a much better fisherman than I am. Because I drop the line in and nothing bites. But God threw the line in and he hardened this man's heart so that he took the bait. And he got glory over this man, and he got glory over the Egyptians. He was sovereign over all of it. The wind, the water, Pharaoh, the army, all of it. He's sovereign. The second thing you see is this. Sin will make you do foolish things. I've been reminded of that this week in the lives of people that are close to our church family. Sin will make you do foolish things. And we could talk about the Egyptians and talk about how foolish it was to march in. But let's just talk about the Hebrews. And let's talk about the folly of the Hebrew people. I'm reminded when I read about the Hebrews here, 1 Corinthians 10. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul starts off, he's talking about the Exodus, he's talking about the Red Sea, and he talks about how the people were just constantly rebelling, constantly grumbling, constantly whining. And this is what Paul says. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Look, this is a lesson that you need to learn when you look at these people and you see the evil desires of their heart. What are the evil desires? We just want to go back to Egypt. We told you it would be better to stay in Egypt and be slaves and have our belly filled than to march out to freedom with you. All we want to do is go back. And this is the first of many we just want to go back speeches. We just wish we could go back. We just wish we had never left. Well, you just brought us out here to kill us, and it's doubly mean because at least there were places to be buried in Egypt. There's nowhere to bury anybody out here in the wilderness. These people are foolish. And the lesson is, I think for you and me, yesterday's worship does not guarantee today's obedience. Just take your Bible, and let's just go back a couple of days. Look at Exodus 12, and I want you to read with me 27 and 28. This is just days earlier. This is instructions about the Passover. The children are going to say, what do you mean about this service? What are we doing this for? And you shall say it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people in Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but he spared our houses. And what did the people do? They bowed their heads and worshipped. And then they went and did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And when we looked at that verse on Sunday morning, I said, look, let's give them a little bit of commendation here. They're a rotten bunch of people, but this is pretty good. They worship the Lord, and they go out and they do exactly what Moses told them to do. Good for you yesterday. But yesterday's worship isn't going to stop you from being disobedient today. And we flip the passage, and we come to Exodus 14, and we find the people saying things like this. 
Verse 11, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die in the wilderness? What have, you, what have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Why did you do that? Isn't this what we told you? We told you, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They're terrified. The, the text tells us in verse 10, they lifted up their eyes and they saw the Egyptians marching after them and they feared greatly. It's like they just completely forgot what God did in Egypt with the Passover and the plagues. It's like they have short-term spiritual memory loss. It's like they're no different than you and me. Where we can walk into a room and we can sing the songs and we can say all the right things and we can get the right feelings and then we can leave and we can leave as ungrateful, untrusting malcontents. That's exactly what you see here. Sin will make you do foolish, foolish things. You say, how foolish for these people. How foolish that they don't trust the Lord. The ten plagues and the, the firstborn and, and all the signs that God gave to Moses and the pillar that's with them. They just had to look up and see the pillar. God was with them. How could they not trust? What a bunch of fools. Sin will turn you into a fool. Sin left unchecked in your heart will make you say and think and do foolish things. And you see that on display for the people. You look at, uh, at the passage and you say, well, doesn't it say that they cried out? Verse 10, they cried out to the Lord. Well, they did cry out to the Lord. But I like the commentator who says, this is more of a spiritual temper tantrum than an actual cry for help. This is no, not so much, hey, we know you can save us. Would you please save us? Save us for your glory. This is more of just the child on aisle three at Walmart laying on the floor kicking and screaming. How could you be so terrible to me? Why would you do this to me? Sin will make you do foolish things. Number three, thank God for this. God takes the initiative in fighting for his people. While you and I are like the child at Walmart on aisle three, kicking and screaming on the floor, God is taking the initiative to save us. You see that on display in this passage. He didn't wait for the Hebrews to get their act together spiritually before he brought them out of Egypt. He didn't say, look, Here's the Ten Commandments. You guys are going to need to keep these. Let's say I'll grade on a curve and you need at least a 90. And if you can do it for, I don't know, three months, six months, a year, then we'll talk about getting out of here. He just gets them out. And he saves them. And truth be told, he drags these people at times kicking and screaming out of Egypt. That's what they're doing in this passage. We want to go back. We don't want to go with you. We just wanted to stay in Egypt. And God is just dragging them out. He is taking the initiative to save these people. Look what we read in the text, verse 13 and 14. Moses said to the people after their little speech, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. He will work for you today. This is a completely new concept in the history of the world. A God working for his people. Everyone else on the earth thinks, no, 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 people work for the God. You do things for the God. And Moses says, not, this, not, not with this God, not with the Lord. He's going to work for you. He's going to save you. 
You don't have to do anything. You just have to stand there and zip it and watch. He's going to fight for you. You get down in verse 25, and the Egyptians know that God's fighting for his people. They say, we got to get out of here. Let's flee from before Israel, for the Lord is fighting against the Egyptians. And then it's all summed up in verse 30. The Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and they saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. He fought for these people, and he didn't wait for them to get their act together. Listen, this is pointing you forward to a great gospel truth that you see on full display when Jesus shows up. Look at these verses, Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. On the cross, he accomplishes everything necessary for your salvation. When did he do it? While you were still a sinner. He did not wait for you to get your act together so he could save you. 1 John 4, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And what did he do? He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He didn't wait for us to make the first move. He didn't wait for us to to say a certain prayer or, or be obedient enough. He just took the initiative to save us in sending his son. This runs counter to the way our brains naturally work. And you just got to see it all the way through the Bible. Exodus 14, Romans 5, 1 John 4. It's from Genesis to Revelation. God takes the initiative to save his people. He is not sitting around waiting for you to believe in him so that he can save you. He has saved you so that you can believe in him. He takes the initiative to save his people. He did not wait for the Hebrews to get their act together. He drug them out kicking and screaming and made them his people. He did not wait for you or I to walk an aisle or pray a prayer. He sent Jesus to die for our sins while we were still sinners. He saved us so that we might believe and be part of his family and part of his kingdom. He takes the initiative in all of it. And you see the icing on the cake in Exodus 14. If you look at verse 31, it's after all the plagues and all the signs and the whole Passover and all the stuff with the Red Sea. Then we come down to verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and now they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now they believe. God saves them so that they might believe. It's the exact same thing that's true for me and true for you. God saved us in Christ so that we might believe in him. Last idea is this. The ultimate purpose of salvation, the ultimate purpose of judgment, is that all would know the truth about God. All would know the truth about God. And there's an interesting progression in this passage. And it's like a parallel progression. There's two tracks running throughout this passage of people progressing in their knowledge of God. One track is the Hebrew people. And this track that the Hebrew people go on in Exodus 14 ends up in salvation. And there's a second track, and it's the Egyptians. And this second track ends up with the Egyptians knowing the Lord, but knowing him in judgment, not in salvation. I just want you to see both of these tracks moving through the passage. So look in the text, and let's talk about the Hebrews. Look with me at Exodus 14.10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. 
they were terrified that they were about to be slaughtered by the sea. And what does Moses say to them? He says, verse 13, the first thing he says, fear not. Do not be afraid. But then did you notice how the passage ends up? Look at the end of the chapter. Verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. They didn't fear Pharaoh anymore. They didn't fear death in the wilderness anymore. They didn't fear having to march through an ocean anymore. None of that bad fear, but now it's good fear. They fear the Lord because they've seen his power on display. They've seen him come through for his people. They know something about the Lord that they didn't know before. And now instead of fearing Pharaoh, their fear is directed in the right uh, direction and they fear the Lord. They're moving in their knowledge of God. And it all results in God's glory. Now look at the Egyptians. Look at verse 4. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And, here's the end, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. I want them to know that I'm Yahweh. Look at verse 18. He says, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And you jump down to the end of the passage. We've read it several times already. Verse 24 and 25, in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptians. He threw the forces into a panic. He clogged the chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, look, they know. Let us flee from before Israel for the Lord, all caps, Yahweh, fights for them against the Egyptians. They know. They don't know in salvation, but they know in judgment. And these are the two tracks you see running down the, down the rail in Exodus 14. God wants everyone involved to know who he is. And for some in this story, the Hebrews, that ends up in salvation. They know the truth about the Lord and they fear him and they believe him. And for others in this story, they know who, they're, who they've, they've been messing with, who they're fighting against. But they know in judgment And they're drowned in the sea. And the Bible is weaving these two ideas together that in the end all are going to know. And we've talked about Philippians 2 over and over and over again. That in the end every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's not a promise that everyone will be part of a worship service at the end. That means all those who are saved and all those who experience judgment will know the truth. That's God's desire that people know him. Because when he's known, he receives glory. You see that in Exodus 14. There's this connection. I'm going to get glory, and they're going to know. I'm going to get glory over them, and they're going to know about me. Those two things fit together. God wants to be known. And for some, that ends in salvation. And for some, that ends in judgment. One Bible commentator puts it like this. Douglas Stewart. God's purpose was to humiliate Pharaoh and the Egyptians to expose the nonsense of their religion, and to show himself the only true God. In the end, all will know. And my prayer for you is that you would know today, not in judgment, but in salvation, 
that you would follow the example of the people, at least for the moment, they get it right here at the end of chapter 14. They fear the Lord and they believe in the Lord. Listen, to know God in salvation is not complicated. It starts with understanding who God is as the sovereign Lord over everything and just acknowledging that you are God and I'm not. It involves you confessing your sin before God and saying, God, I have fallen short. I, I don't have a heart that loves you at all, all times. I, I don't love you with all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my mind and all of my strength. I don't love my neighbor as myself. I have fallen short of your standard and fallen short of your glory. It involves you acknowledging that God took the initiative to save you while you were still a sinner. I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins while I was still a sinner. I believe that God showed his love for me in sending his son to be the propitiation of my sins, to take the wrath of God that my sins deserved, and he did it before I ever loved him. He took the initiative in that. It involves you humbling yourself and fearing God and saying, God, I repent. I change my mind about sin. I change my mind about you and I am trusting in you and I am believing in you and what you have done through Jesus. In the end, all will know. And God receives the glory. My prayer for you is that you know today and that you know in salvation. I want to ask you to bow and we're going to pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We believe that it's true. We are amazed at the salvation that you worked for your people. Father, we're humbled that you take the initiative to save us. Father, I pray for those in the room who have been led into folly because of their sin. And Father, I pray that their eyes would be open today. Father, I pray that as we sang earlier, you would reveal to them a glimpse of your glory in Jesus Christ. Father, give us hearts to turn from sin and to trust in Jesus. Father, give us hearts that rejoice at who you are as the sovereign Lord of all and hearts that rejoice in the salvation that you provide for your people. Father, we pray that as we take a moment to sing and just to reflect on your word and your power and your glory and all of it, that you are honored and that we can put away distractions, we can put away busyness, we can put, a, put away and, and put aside things that are on our minds and our hearts just to focus on you for a few moments. Father, be honored as we sing and as we worship.